This program is sponsored by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Students and faculty aren't just ready for change at the Scripps College, they're hungry for it. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're starting the first of a three-part series examining issues surrounding race, media, and politics, and the interrelationships between the three topics. We start with a conversation with Danielle Kilgo. She's receiving her doctorate from the University of Texas, Austin, and next fall will start teaching in the media school at Indiana University. Her research focus has been analyzing the visual images of African Americans in the media along with politicians. She contends blacks are often portrayed by unfavorable images compared to whites. Prior to starting her academic life, Danielle worked as a photographer, designer, and writer, so she fully understands the job of collecting and portraying images and the impact that those images have. You've got an interesting um, research topic and topics. Uh, Your research is really practical, not just theoretical. How did, how did you choose your research topics? Well, I came at this as a journalist. So uh, one of the things that I did was realize with children, I didn't have the time constraints to always be trying to report on things that were happening. So um, this move to be uh, coming back to the academy was really just sort of an organic move, something that I could do um, that helped me really understand what the practice was doing. Um, in addition to uh, still being able to work with journalists and, and move with journalists, but be able to go to sleep at 2 a.m. when, yeah. <laughs> when I needed to right. not be covering a story. So um, really part of this was um, uh, most of my research questions initiate from my own experience. Um, and then, you know, as the uh, climate of journalism and digital technology have changed so much just even in the last decade, um, finding new questions within that. Well, I didn't have Snapchat and Instagram and and Tumblr and all of these outlets that I needed to place information to when I was uh, working in the industry. And so um, from there, just sort of looking at these new emerging digital technologies and seeing how much they change everyone and everybody's. I, I was fascinated by how, at least in writing, your research is characterized that you examine uh, visual images of certain groups of people. Talk, yes. talk about that. Explain that in average terms. Okay. So um, part of uh, my research now is really um, looking at the images that accompany um, uh news topics that have traditionally only been studied in text. So um, for scholarship, they've basically said, for example, with protests, um, protests are, are packaged in certain ways. This is what written journalists does do. And um, from that perspective, they've pretty much always ignored visuals. They can accompany yeah. them. <laughs> and so for me, this was alarming because they were saying things like, um, or a lot of scholarship was saying, 
like a, a, a focus on writing or a focus on violence of protesters or a focus on provoking behavior of protesters is really a delegitimizing thing for the protest in general. And so for me, it came to this point of contention even thinking about the civil rights movement, for example, um, where where's this t these defiant acts of protesting really delegitimizing to audiences? And so um, did they really make people think that the protesters were bad, you know? And so from that perspective, I've tried to really reimagine what pictures um, mean to people and if we can quantify that information so that we can really have enough scholarship to understand how these packages work together, what the written journalists and what the visual journalists are doing together to help us really have more meaning and understanding of the impact of our media portrayals. Help me out from the visual standpoint. From the print standpoint mm -hmm. and from the broadcast standpoint, civil disobedience or gathering of predominantly white people it is called uh, uh, perhaps a disturbance, but but more often it's a protest. Uh, it, it's neutral terms. Right. A gathering of people of color, predominantly African American people, is a riot, uh, and and that's the way the the words are used. Are the images used the same way? The images, um, so what I found in my research is the images are thought of in a similar way by some people. And I think that it's fair to say that most white people will see these conundrums initially. Now, I think that it would be uh, uh, remiss to say that they don't, they don't know that when a group of black people are together protesting something, they're always rioting. I don't think that that's true. They, they, that's not the overall evaluation. But it is sort of a prime or stereotype or a schema in our heads about what black protest looks like. Um, and in for visuals, um, that's what's complicating them. That's that's what's complicating black protest of of this time right now is that we have these mental schemas and these stereotypes built in our head about what black protest should look like, um, or what black protest does look like, and it's usually violent or riotous or um, uh, involving looting of some kind. Um, the rhetoric um, they're they're breaking up their own neighborhoods. For example, right. that um, sort of rhetoric is is accompanied with, oh, there's a bunch of black people getting together to protest um, what we call an anti-authoritarian or a, um, a uh, status quo challenging protest against something that's well established, the police force, right? So, um, so in visuals, uh, it is complicated because uh, for visual journalists, they really have to think hard about how their visual representation can challenge that already existing stereotype. I, I think it would be fair to say that white culture has a, a stereotype in mind of the angry black man. Um, how do visual images that we see daily add to that? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, there's two kinds of areas that that that, that, that is a problem in. Um, so for these incidents that have ignited the protests that right. the Michael the, Brown's the, the, the shootings by police and, and that type of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so visual journalists have a tendency to show blacks um, who are victims of this, right, not as victims. So they're not showing what they look like when they died or they're not showing what they look like after they were beat up by police. More often they're not than they are, I should say. 
they are less likely to show them in completely neutral ways. So there's always something. It's hard for a black man or woman particularly for a black man, not to look criminal. I have pictures of, for example, Michael Brown, where I had people think aloud just about what certain images of him look like. And, and as something as small as a potential white cup in his hand could have equaled, you know, probably lean with the, with the kids use to drink and, you know, get high on um, codeine, um, that that's what a white cup symbolizes. Just holding a white cup. I mean, it's very hard for mm. black men not to be criminal. So from that instance, you have that anger sort of stereotype being provoked just by the incident itself. And then on the other side, lots of the protest images are people yelling, people screaming. And that really primes what um, a scholar named Entman has called like this demanding black activist. And so... Um, even when in an organized, normal, regular protest, that's challenged as sort of delegitimizing to some people because, you know, well, they're so demanding. All they want is social change, you know, like, <laughs> not, not or a big safety deal. in their neighborhood. Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Why do they want it so bad? Why are they yelling at me? And so I think that the visual landscape that we see, especially in digital media, which is where most of my um, uh, research focuses, is reiterating these stereotypes, which is really problematic. Carrying your research to black women, how, how do we visualize them in, in the media? Is, is there an equal stereotype to the angry black man? Um, there is. I mean, there are a lot of stereotypes that accompany black women. In this particular scenario, this is such an engaging scenario because for the first time, really, we see black women being brought to the limelight of, oh, they are victims of police brutality, too. So this was really a point of contention for um, some of my work because for black women, we've not really seen them in this sort of media light. We've not really seen them as victims of police units of force because the media just simply hasn't covered it. It's not that it hasn't happened. It's that the media simply hasn't covered it. And so um, this absence of data hasn't allowed quantitative journalism scholars to be able to pick up and, and, and go and look at this stuff. But, for example, the death of Sandra Bland and the McKinney, they called her the McKinney pool girl, her name's Dejera Becton, um, in McKinney, Texas. Her sort of assault by the police officer, Eric Casebolt, um, really gave, for the first time, this visualization of, oh, wow, I can look at these pictures now. I wonder what these mean to people. Um, in my dissertation, I look at these images and I ask people to think aloud about them again. And for black women, it's very different because people have not seen girls victimized in this way before. It's much easier. But we don't have the schemas. We don't have the stereotypes to narrate this particular issue. Um, it's much easier for people to wonder about what the police officer was doing, for example, in McKinney. What was he doing? Why would he do that to a girl? Um, one of my participants said, I think this guy got out of hand. I can't understand. I can't understand why he would do that. And, and all the other uh, scenarios, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, he can kind of understand. <laughs> but in this one scenario, he just can't understand. And it was really moving to me to see just how these schemas sort of shift and how they don't translate directly for black women. So we have this new and innovative space where we can reconstruct those for black women. That doesn't mean for protesters that black women aren't being challenged completely <laughs> or reiterating stereotypes. They are, um, they are talked about for what they wear when they protest. They are talked about for being demanding, of course. Um, the angry black woman is just as live and well as the angry black man. 
And so there's just a reiteration of some of the stereotypes that we expect. There's also it was a mother um, during the, I believe it was the Baltimore uh, protest that went out and, and grabbed her son who was protesting and, and hit him and was displayed as mother of the year, right? Because she was beating her black son on camera. Right. That characterization of her, people don't, people remembered her. People remembered her as the mom of the year. People remembered what that meant at that point. People remember that that was sort of a delegitimizing space of black women against the Black Lives Matter movement. And so, I mean, it's really interesting, all these these stereotypes that aren't necessarily applied to women at all, all the time are being applied in this new way within the protest realm, too. We'll be back after this short message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, Programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You have such interesting research. Not only are, are you looking at racial stereotyping and racial imaging, but, but you're also looking at politicians and political imaging. Talk about that. Um, so most of my work has been a little bit experimental um, with politicians and political imaging. Um, we have looked, for example, at uh, trying to figure out what moral looks like for political candidates. How do their non-moral looks like? What moral looks like, right? So um, people have said, for example, that your non-verbal behavior, so what you just do with your hands or your face, that they make you more trustworthy or more credible or more moral. In some cases, moral for normal people would look like, for example, putting your hand over your heart and raising your hand and getting ready to say the Pledge of Allegiance, assumingly, right? Um, does that work for politicians? And that was the big question. I wonder what moral looks like. Uh, so we began down this road, me and a team of scholars, Renita Coleman and Trent Bolter, began on this road of really trying to figure out if we could experiment with these nonverbal behaviors from regular, everyday politicians and see if we could figure out what moral might look like and what trustworthiness might look like. Um, and really try to be able to apply that schema back into other scenarios, right? So... Um, You've got to be in heaven right now <laughs> with the, everything going on in it's, politics. It's interesting. We've had to sort of, I mean. Have you had to zero in and President bring it Trump in a little bit? President Trump has made, has shifted, and it's the same with Hillary Clinton. These uh, these two really almost polarizing candidates, what moral, uh, what these what these character traits look like is was alarmingly different, I think, than the research that we were doing initially. We chose a regular, everyday politician, somebody you would elect um, onto your city council, somebody that you would elect as your senator, for example. We wanted to try to isolate this into the not these big, caricatures of 
politicians because you're right, uh, this revolutionized um, what we were thinking. And so, um, um, so with the rise, of, we, I mean, we'd already done the experiments with the rise of the uh, sort of changing landscape from the election. Um, we have invited the idea of the the, uh, the idea that these characteristics will change based on what has developed in the political landscape generally. So if you don't trust the government at all, you're not going to be able to define any of these politicians as trustworthy. So um, moving forward, we're going to have to definitely take all these into consideration. Donald Trump, obviously, uh, President Trump has certain mannerisms that are often captured right. uh, non-verbally on, on film or, or in still images. Do they run counter to his personality or in sync with his personality? Well, I think it depends on who portrays his personality. <laughs> it okay. depends on which um, media outlet you're talking to. Um, I noticed during the election, during the election season, that and I, I taught this to my students, I said, um, when you look at how he's portrayed, he looks odd. Like, he, he's not portrayed in the standard, stoic way. Um, visual journalists were continually capturing these just not pleasantly pleasing pictures of him and using them on their front pages. And so, um, uh, and it wasn't the same for Hillary Clinton. It just wasn't. So after the election, I said, watch, if he wins, it will change. And it did. And I think that there are quite a few more <laughs> pictures um, now that, that portray him better, that show him in the more politician-like light. Um, more statesman-like, perhaps? Yeah, what we would expect from our presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. I think, And it's not that I think he changed. It's that I think our media outlets changed. I think our visual journalists changed. I think we started taking him seriously, more seriously. Um, and that portrayal had to be more serious in that instance. Now, this is an observation without fact, <laughs> okay? Right. This is just my observation. It seemed that during the campaign, the more uh, erratic that Donald Trump was and the images were angry and, and almost violent in, in portrayal, that Vice presidential candidate Mike Pence was, by contrast, pictured as pensive and soft-spoken and solid and uh, moral, <laughs> to use your term. The contrast was marked between the two, and almost Mike Pence was counterbalancing the erraticism of, of, of presidential candidate Trump. I would absolutely agree with that, <laughs> with that assertion. I haven't empirically dove into that yet either. Um, however, yes, the images of um, our vice president are so much more what you would expect. And I think, you know, the Trump presidency was about or the candidacy was about revolutionizing what you should expect. I think that's what he ran it his whole campaign on. I think that's what he's running his sort of anti-media rhetoric on now. This is what you should you should not expect me to look like your regular politician, and you should not expect them to portray me like your regular politician because they're fake news. <laughs> and Mike Pence has been really interesting because he's been able to stay out of that because he's stayed 
a statesman-like politician like we would expect. His nonverbal behaviors, I think we could still reevaluate as this is him looking moral and this is him looking trustworthy. Donald Trump, I don't know if we could do the same thing. <laughs> so, Have you uh, extended your, your nonverbal research of politicians to the, the House Investigative Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, and other places, or are you just focusing now either on local or the, the, the top national people? Well, after we have not expanded in that direction, after we finished, we um, only looked at the morality and personality characteristics of the predominant racial and sexual uh, characteristics of politicians, a white male. And so from there, I think that the research, the way the direction we're going is, are these the same for a white female politician? Are these the same for a black or Latino politician? Um, in the South and in the North, for example. Um, we would like to really expand and understand the landscape of not, I mean, of non-presidential candidates in politics, um, and then perhaps try to figure out the presidential running campaign. So I have to take you the next step, but and that is you're doing all this research, but you came from a journalistic background. You came from a visual mm -hmm. background. You're now seeing all of this literally through a different lens, through, through your research lens. Are photographers and image gatherers going to change uh, based upon your research? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm hoping that photographers are listening. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the first part is find a platform for people to listen. But um, the second... Um, thing is that I don't know that everyone is totally conscious of how things are interpreted or how quickly they can they can um, be recognized by their audience as something bad or reinforce something bad. And so um, I think photographers can change. I mean, I think they can understand more. It's like when you go on an assignment and you go back to that assignment the second time, you know you know the people, you know it's different, you're kind of in, you're kind of like family. And um, uh, so after you spend some time with those people, you start to understand a little bit more about who they are and what, what they're doing. Um, and that's not always enough to fight these stereotypes and schemas. I mean, photographers shouldn't be responsible for changing our socialization. <laughs> this, is, this is a product of how we teach people, of how we socialize them, of our, of our schools, of our education system generally. But they can challenge it, and I think that most importantly, it's finding out how can you actually challenge this when, when a black man can't protest in any right way. How can you challenge this? How can visual journalists help that? And so um, I think I'm still searching for that answer. I, I'm still trying to figure it out. I think I have a couple of suggestions, but I'm still tr trying to figure out that answer. And so um, I think that, uh, that once we can figure that answer together, we can really inspire a new sort of realm of visual journalism um, that tackles these issues. Danielle, thank you for talking with me. Good luck with your research. Thanks I so know much. you're making a big move to Indiana University yes. and, and good luck with your start of academic life. Thank you so much. <laughs> Today we've talked with academic Danielle Kilgo about her research on the fairness of images about race and politics. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. 
I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.